with the threat sensing part of the brain racing ahead. Um, it means that adolescents are more self-conscious. They're more uh, sensitive to harsh criticism and they're more sensitive to perfectionistic expectations of them or of, that they have of themselves. Um, and so that kind of sensitivity to anything that reeks of criticism or rejection. And we know that adolescence is full of criticism and rejection. And then you add social media and you have another kind of environmental stressor where there's a lot of focus on the ideal or the perfect or, um, right? So that's going on. Hello and welcome to Mothers Matter podcast with me, Claire Pay. Uh, today I'm talking with Erica Commissar. Uh, Erica is a New York psychoanalyst, parent, coach and author and just a brilliant advocate for mothers and the roles of mothers in their children's lives. Um, and I'm delighted this is the third podcast with her. And she also spoke about um, Mothers and Guilt, which was episode five, and Mothers and Anxiety which was episode 19 of the first series. So in this podcast, we just jump on in there with um, with uh, questions about teenagers. And for any parents of teenagers or people who may be teenagers, uh, she has a brilliant amount of advice and wisdom and encouragement for parents. Uh, I'd also um, like to mention the book that she's bringing out, which is called Chicken Little, The Sky Isn't Falling, Raising Resilient Adolescents in This New Age of Anxiety. Um, in England, we call it, uh, in the UK, we call it Chicken Licking. This is Chicken Little. And I'm also delighted to be uh, to have a little mention at the beginning of the book in her credits. So that's wonderful. So I hope you really enjoy this podcast. Okay, well, Erica, thank you so much for talking to me uh, on this podcast about your new book, which is called Chicken Little, The Sky Isn't Falling, Raising Resilient Adolescents in the New Age of Anxiety. So there's a lot to unpack there. Um, could you tell us, first of all, why you decided to write this book? Well, you know, I wrote it because of the the incredible suffering that I was seeing in my practice, um, that more and more adolescents were being diagnosed and were on medication. And parents really felt at a loss in terms of both how to help their children and how to feel close to their children. So it was really my way of uh, writing a book that would um, address all the misinformation and misunderstandings about uh, what was happening in terms of these mental disorders of anxiety and depression and ADHD and addictions. And, um, and you know, the book is really broken down into uh, chapters on each of the uh, issues that parents might face with their children in adolescence. And, um, and you know, I meant it to be and mean it to be a comprehensive guide uh, a mental health guide for parents so they can read it through and understand things they didn't understand before, but also can pick it up um, as a guide if their children are suffering from any one of these issues. Brilliant. Well, I think it'll be a very popular book indeed. It's, um, yeah, this is such a, a hot topic. What would you say are the big, you mentioned misinformation. What do you think are the big misdiagnoses and misinformation that's going on at the moment? Well, that anxiety and depression and ADHD are 
conditions in and of themselves, um, freestanding conditions that you should just medicate the symptoms away for, as opposed to trying to understand what is at the root of mm-hmm. these symptoms, because they're really symptoms, they're bodily symptoms of stress. And so what we say is that anxiety, depression, and ADHD are all ways that our bodies express that we are encountering either internal or psychosocial stressors. And, and uh, But our society has become very superficial in terms of not asking the questions of where are these conditions coming from? What is the stress that we do have some control over? Uh, and so that that's the biggest myth, if you will, or misconception. Um, and I also think there are a lot of myths that are debunked in the book, as well as that, that parents should run to medication when their children are suffering. There are some situations where medication can be helpful, but it is never the first place that I advise parents to go when their children are suffering. The first place is to go to see a specialist who is a child or adolescent specialist and who is focused on feelings, a talk therapist who's focused on feelings um, and can talk about feelings and talk about the internal conflicts that cause these issues of anxiety, depression, ADHD. Brilliant. Well, there's quite a, a few things that occur to me in that. One is that um, what would be if if adolescents are feeling these stresses and so on? What would be a normal? Is is there a position in which adolescents would be acting normally, and this behaviour is normal and shouldn't be medicated? And you just go back to the source and try and treat the source, or that source may be normal for teenagers, and they they just have to get through it. Well, I mean, what's the difference between having a bad day, having an anxious day, having a, a circumstantially depressed day, you know, you did poorly on a test and you felt sad and disappointed, um, or you have a test tomorrow and you were worried about it. So worry and disappointment and sadness over a loss is not mental illness. That is part of the human condition of just being a feeling person. Um, We say when there's intensity and degree, it turns into something that really you need to get help with. Um, And what that means is in the book, I list the symptoms and signs that parents should look for to know that their children are are suffering in a way where they really need to then reach out and get help for their children and for themselves, right? Um, But chronicity has a lot to do with it. So the intensity or number of symptoms and how intense those symptoms are, but also how long the symptoms last. So if symptoms last for more than two weeks, then it's not just a bad day or an anxious day. Right. Uh, So what would would you expect normal teenage behavior to be I mean you, your book is about adolescence which I think you say is nine to 25 yes is that, is that the right well, I, it's much around, yeah <laughs> a long old time um apparently in Roman time it went on to 30 or something I think it was 30 you weren't considered an adult so you were 30 anyway um but I'd like to really focus on the teenage years so the sort of 13 to to 19 or probably 13 to 17 is probably the the crucial sort of upheaval time um what would you expect to see in a normal teenage over the course of you know six months what range of behaviors would be expected 
Well, in the book, I split adolescence up into three phases, right? So you have early adolescence, which is nine to 13. So I call that period the period of exploration. Um, and what that means is that there's it's marked by a lot of physical change, puberty, the beginning of pu puberty and all of the hormonal and physical and mood changes that come with puberty. Uh, also, separation is in early adolescence, meaning physically distancing yourself from your parents to try to be a little more independent. But middle adolescence is what you're focusing on, which is a very painful period, 14 to 18. Um, and there's a lot of important stuff that's going on in there. It's, it's the period I call declaration. Um, and it is the period of not just physically removing yourself from your parents, but trying to figure out who you are as an individual separate from them, uh, meaning which parts of them and their beliefs and who they are do you want to keep and which parts do you want to leave behind? And we call that individuation, figuring out who you are separate from your parents. But there's also a lot of gender and sexuality identity formation going on, sexual experimentation going on. Um, there's a tremendous amount of academic pressure that these kids feel at that point because they're they're starting not just to be present oriented, but starting to be forward looking into their future. And that it comes with a heavy burden of uh, worrying about what the future holds. Um, so that's middle adolescence. And then late adolescence is the period that I call confirmation, which is about 19 to 25. And that's more when you have personality and identity synthesis and integration, when you sort of the pieces come together more or less. Um, and what, what I call finding your place in the adult world. So a late adolescent is really struggling with where do I belong with my work? Meet was Freud said, you have to have meaningful work and love to be a happy person. Where do I belong in terms of meaningful work? And where do I belong in terms of love? And where am I going to land with that? So those are the three phases. But so middle adolescence is really... Um, declaration of who you are, easier said than done today, because there are so many choices um, and many more choices than ever before. And many people would, you know, would get angry at me and say, well, many of these things aren't choices, but some of them are and some of them aren't. But the point is, you know, 75 years ago, there were fewer choices in people's minds, choices, and um, and it was easier. I think now it's really a complicated environment. More work choices, more gender and sexuality choices, uh, many more choices, and more choices, more overwhelming. Mm. So, what what would um, how would you expect people to be behaving in that that middle adolescent period? Well, again, there's still moody. There's still a lot of moodiness. Um, there's what's happening is a kind of shifting socially. So there's a lot of disappointment and rejection and feelings of sadness about social groups shifting. Um, there, there's something called asymmetrical brain development that's happening um, in adolescence. And uh, what that basically means is that the emotional regulation part of the brain um, that keeps emotions from going too high or too low, that part of the brain isn't fully developed until about 25, and it kind of lags behind in development, whereas the other two parts of the brain related to uh, adolescent brain development, the, um, the reward centers of the brain and the limbic system or the threat sensing parts of the brain are racing ahead in development. So you have this kind of asymmetrical development, and that's problematic 
for adolescence, because what that means is, for instance, with the threat sensing part of the brain racing ahead, um, it means that adolescents are more self-conscious. They're more uh, sensitive to harsh criticism and they're more sensitive to perfectionistic expectations of them or of, that they have of themselves. Um, and so that kind of sensitivity to anything that reeks of criticism or rejection. And we know that adolescence is full of criticism and rejection. And then you add social media and you have another kind of environmental stressor where there's a lot of focus on the ideal or the perfect or, um, right. So that's going on. Um, and also the reward center of the brain, which is the part that responds to stimulation. We know, uh, because it's racing ahead in development without the emotional regulation part, being able to balance it. Uh, it means that when adolescents are exposed to too much stimulation of any kind, that that means social media, that means uh, drugs, alcohol, video games, pornography, gambling, um, any kind of stimulation that is over the top produces, um, so the research actually is interesting. It says that the difference between an adult brain and an adolescent brain is that when an adult is introduced to a small amount of stimulation. It produces a small amount of dopamine, a moderate amount of um, stimulation. The adult brain produces a moderate amount of, of dopamine. And if they're introduced to an extreme amount of stimulation, the, the adult brain still only produces a moderate amount of dopamine. Mm -hmm. but, but with, a, with an adolescent, because of this disparity, this asymmetrical development, when, when an adolescent is exposed to a small amount, they produce a small amount. A moderate amount, they produce a moderate amount. But when they're introduced to a large amount of stimulation, they have a tenfold increase in dopamine production. Good. That leads to things like addiction and dependency. And um, yeah, so that is what's going on. Mm. Um, what what advice then is that if we just stick with that idea of um, you know the the uh, the tenfold increase in dopamine and the extreme reaction and addiction and so on, uh, what would be your advice then for parents who think their children might be um, sort of engaging in very risky behaviour because they're enjoying it so much? Well, yeah, moderation. So, and replacement, substitution. So, you cannot take novelty seeking or risk taking behavior away from adolescents because it's part of that uh, dopamine response. And so, um, they are novelty seeking. The the good. Let me just say the good side of it, um, and maybe what is. Uh, evolutionarily meant by it uh, is not just it's a mistake of evolution, but I think that adolescents are more able to take in new information and are seek new information. So it's a very intense period of learning, right? You think about when we learn the most, it's from about nine to 25. It's when we're learning middle school, high school in America, primary school, secondary school in the UK, when they go to university. It's when we're, and also professional school, it's when we're accumulating the most knowledge. It's when we're the most curious and the most hungry. And then what happens is the brain gets a little more settled after 25 as adults. We seek new information, but you know, it's not as, not as curious, not as novelty seeking. We like security. 
So that is what is meant by it. That's the good part of it. The downside of it is too much is too much. And so um, the idea is at a very early age, and so my book is also meant to be a preventative book, because if you set limits with adolescents early enough and you reward them, because the brain is also very susceptible to rewards, remember, if you reward them with things like money, there's research show that if you actually give your adolescent um, a 30, pound, 30 pounds, I'll say, I don't know, it's, a, you know, I'm, I'm thinking in America, we would say give $50 for every A that they get on a major exam, but I don't know what it would be in the UK, right? So um, 20, <laughs> pounds, 20 pounds for every A, okay. um, they actually, that actually motivates them because the reward centers of the brain are highly motivated. So moderation with the ability of parents to set limits, we have the ability to set limits, but set them early rather than late because once they've already experienced the over-the-top dopamine, you may have missed your window. But um, rewards, and then last but not least, uh, and I'll use a metaphor if I can, Claire. If you put your if you step on a landmine, and you're going to take your foot off. You got to find a really big rock to put on the landmine. Otherwise, <laughs> you know, so what's the big rock? You have to find substitutions for the novelty that are healthier. So if, for instance, if you have a very risk-taking kid, you get them into rock climbing in a supervised way. You get them into skiing. You get them into um any kind of physical exercise that's a little risky, but is supervised. Um, believe mm -hmm. it or not, that can be the big rock that replaces it. Um, ah, would, yeah. would it work with um, uh, just to sort of cross all the metaphors with a virtual reality? Could you get them back on the screens playing Call of Duty with that? You, 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 <laughs> you can, but that, that actually um, stimulates... So physical exercise actually has been known to do very good things. Um, I would say it's better to actually physically get them into something. Mm -hmm. um, but, but to say that with some adolescents, when they turn to video games, again, nothing is all bad, right? So we know that video games can also be a release for some adolescents who are more balanced. They can be a release of aggression, of desire, of, you know, all kinds of things. But, um, but I would say physical exercise is more, more associated with, with healthy things. For instance, um, the hippocampus, remember the hippocampus is the part of the brain that we we have something called working memory in, which is the ability to learn comes from our ability to retain information. And um, what research has shown is that when kids get more physical exercise, they have a greater capacity to learn because they, the, the working memory parts of their brain are stimulated. So there's many ways in which physical exercise is both um, uh, a way to address the novelty and risk-taking behaviors, um, and it's also a way to help them to increase their ability to learn. Um, and so, you know, there, and there's other things I talk about in the book too, but you have to replace, you're not going to take away the novelty seeking. Um, the other thing is, you know, believe it or not, allowing your 
child to drive a car uh, if they're not completely imbalanced and they have lessons and they get a license and they understand the implications. There's a little bit of risk taking in there that they then, um, you know, that replaces the need to sometimes go out and do drugs or so it's it's finding the big rock to replace your foot. But it's mm. not saying I can get rid of this behavior totally because it's actually organic to being it's biologically connected to being adolescent. Brilliant. And it, well, just going back quickly to this sort of uh, uh, incentivizing mm-hmm. our young people to, uh, you know, giving them uh, money if they get a good grade. What what happens if they don't get a good grade? Because not only are they disappointed themselves, but then they don't get the money. It's a double right. whammy. Right. Well, you don't punish them for not getting the good grade, but they don't get the money. But that doesn't mean you punish them and you can say, that's okay. You know, we all have bad days and, you know, um, the most important thing is to try. But, you know, um, next time maybe we can figure out how you can, you know, do it so you spend more time studying or maybe we get a tutor or I can help you. Or, um, But, yeah, you're not going to reward them if they're not getting a good grade, but you also don't punish them. So there's a difference between it's not a binary thing, right? It's not either you're you're great or you suck. It's just, you're saying, you know, look, it's okay if you don't get a good grade, but if you do get this grade, then you get this money and you can save for a bicycle or you can save for a video game or whatever. Okay. And going back to the risky behavior, um, if you've got, uh, say, a late adolescent, you know, they're going out, they're drinking a lot, you know, risky behavior. Is it um, wise to just keep uh, levels of communication open to say, well, tell me if you've done it? Or does that come across as condoning behavior? Or do you say that's totally unacceptable and get furious if you find out and then they do it behind your back? What, what, <laughs> how do you go about it? So I think it's very important to have boundaries between parents and adolescents. And that means that you are the limit setter for them and they don't have the capacity to set limits for themselves. So they still need you to set limits, flexible limits. And I write in the book stories about parents who are inflexible with their limits. But um, yeah, having flexible limits because sometimes limits are meant to be stretched and broken and changed based on circumstances. But, But we are the limit setters. And therefore, we can't be their friends. And so the one thing I encourage parents not to do is to drink with their children or do illegal drugs with their children. Um, Instead, educate their children about consequences, because one thing that is part of the right brain. So what we know is that adolescence is the second critical window of brain development, right, where the right brain, that emotional regulation part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, it's called, is developing. And we know that in that window, just like in the first window, um, it's a period of, you know, uh, where parents have a great influence over their children to to help regulate things that can't be regulated. Executive functioning is part of the right brain. Um, The ability to make good decisions, the ability to, um, so judgment, decision-making, organization, that's all in the right brain. And we know that they can't do that without us fully until they're about 25. Um, And so they still need a lot of our help, which means they can't connect actions to consequences necessarily, because that's part of that executive functioning, the ability to understand 
action-reaction, that is part of the right brain. And so it's our job to teach them that, you know, we know and, and you want to keep open communication because that's what keeps your child in a state of trusting you and sharing with you. And But there's a difference between condoning and listening and not judging and saying, look, I know you're going to try stuff and experiment. I did. Your dad did. Everybody experiments. But there's a big difference between experimenting and going over the top and I just want to make sure that you know what the consequences are, you know, that, and, and I think by teaching them the connection between actions and consequences without judgment, uh, you're actually providing them with kind of the foundation of that executive functioning that they can internalize later. So a, a, a for instance, would be, um, you know, parents don't want their children to binge drink, but we know that they're going to try in America, shots of things, right? Maybe in the UK, they do beer and a lot of beer. I don't know. But in America, they're doing shots of very hard liquor um, at a very young age. Um, and that's different than when I grew up. People did shots, but mostly we drank beer or whatever it was. And, and you don't really, you don't get alcohol poisoning and die necessarily from beer. You can pass out, you can vomit, but from uh, doing 12 shots or 15 shots of vodka, you can actually get alcohol poisoning and die. That's what happens in fraternities in America, right? And I'm sure it happens in the UK too. Um, and so what we know is that they don't know that. And if we haven't told them um, that, you know, when you take a shot of liquor, because we know you're going to try it at some point, you have to wait a really long time for the effect. It doesn't necessarily hit you right away. And if you go ahead and just do another shot and another shot and another shot, because you're not feeling anything, then what happens is your body gets overloaded with alcohol and you can actually die of alcohol poisoning. And so that is our job to teach them that. And most parents think, well, I can't talk about alcohol. I can't talk about marijuana. I can't talk about these things because if I talk about them, that's condoned. No, doing it with them is condoning it. Um, encouraging them is condoning it, but telling them, look, I, I know you're going to try it. And it's important to know this information so you can make better choices. Well, yes. Uh, what happens though when they're off at university or college and then they're home at the weekend, say, or, you know, in, uh, in between term time, um, it's, it's difficult, really, because, you know, they're doing whatever when they're at university. And then when they're at home, do you um, I mean, what can you say? Really? I remember my dad saying to me, you know, what time are you going to get home when I was at university and I was back in the holidays? So I was like, what are you joking? I just whenever whenever I want to get back in, I'll get in <laughs> two, three o'clock. I said, I'll be in by four. He said, make it two, you know, is that sort of thing. Um so it's very difficult when your children have got some independence away from home to, to enforce anything back at home. Yeah, at that point, it's not enforcing as much as it is, as you say, keeping the communication open and talking to them about it. Um, and it's very hard if you've grown up uh, with parents who were old fashioned in terms of the way they looked at these things. And they were just the disciplinarians, the limit setters, because that locked them out of having that open communication that you talked about, um, where they could really talk to their children about what's going on. Um, for instance, my son, my middle son, 
is pledging for a fraternity. Um, does it thrill me that he's pledging for a fraternity? What do you think? No, no parent wants their child to pledge for a fraternity. What What do you have to do to pledge for a, I know joining one, but what do you have to do to pledge for it? Well, it depends. I mean, you know, the shenanigans, lots of things <laughs> that you would not want your child doing. And a lot of it involves alcohol. And um, But some of it's just being silly and being embarrassed. Like they embarrass these young pledges. They make them do things like, you know, run across, the campus naked or clean the fraternity from the night before parties at seven in the morning, they have to get it, you know, stuff like that. But, you know, the bottom line is no parent wants their child to join a fraternity because they're scary places, right? Because a lot of bad stuff happens with kids egging each other on. So with my son, we have a very open policy of talking about things without judgment and just saying, you know, I know you're you know, cleaning the fraternity and what's that like? And, you know, what are you doing? It's, it's, there's no judgment in it. It's the only way that you can have a relationship with your child that is intimate is to take the judgment out. And it's really hard because having limits and teaching them um, consequences is mutually exclusive. Uh, it, I should say, isn't mutually exclusive of also having an open relationship with them where you can be a good listener. And I say, God gave you uh, two ears and one mouth. Listen a lot more than you talk. <laughs> and, um, and so the idea is just really asking open-ended questions and listening. And if there's an opportunity, ask them if they understand. I wonder if you understand what the consequences of smoking marijuana every day are versus once a week? Or have you read any of the research? Or do, you, do you think about it? Or it's that kind of, that is non-judgmental. And is it, yeah. Is it, yeah, you, you'll probably know the answer to this. Something about, uh, we form our opinions as we try to express them. Is there something about getting people to explain what they understand and so on, so they can talk it out? I, I like the, I like the term wonder. I use it with younger children. I use it again with older children and adolescents. So when you when you say, I wonder how it is pledging for this fraternity, or I wonder what it's like going to these parties and experimenting with alcohol. I wonder what that's like. Is it you know how does it feel? And what you're doing when you're asking them about their feelings, you know, you're you're le it's an open ended question. And you're basically um, leaving lots of room for them to express. You're encouraging expression. And if you're scared to hear what they express, then you keep that door shut. And then they're alone with a lot of these things. Um, you know, the idea that parents say to their kids, look, I know you're going to experiment with alcohol, um, but, you know, Drinking too much alcohol makes you feel physically sick and it also can, you know, make you, uh, you know, not have a good day the next day or not do well on a test. You know that or I wonder if you know that. And if you feel sick or you don't want to drink or you're tired of drinking and you want to come home, you can call me and there'll be no judgment and I'll come pick you up. And that's with a younger adolescent. Right. Mm. Again, taking the judgment out. Um, and and really asking open-ended questions and being just emotionally attuned. You know, that's really what it's about. It's about being emotionally attuned. Um, when we are judgmental, 
um, when we're defensive, it means that we're judgmental, right? So if we get defensive with our children, um, then it means that we're judgmental. Uh, using your word wonder, though, I wonder whether when they are trying to answer those questions, they're formulating for themselves how they think about things yeah. that they might not have thought about it That's before. Right. It's, it's getting children to think. So our job is not only helping to regulate their emotions, but stimulating that part of their brain, that executive functioning to think about things like cause and effect and consequences and judgment and making good decisions. And um, yeah, so it's, we are there to help stimulate that part of the brain that, that really gets them to start to use that part of the brain, right? You use it or you lose it, or you never form it. You know, yes, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, well, going back to what you talked about at the beginning and, and the title of your book about the age of anxiety, do you think um, being a teenager is more difficult now than it has been in the past? Is there a particular anxiety in society? And if so, where's that come from? Well, as I said, you know, there are so many reasons why it's a different age uh, of, of stressors, of psychosocial stressors. There's more academic pressure. It's a bigger world. There's more competition. Um, there is social media, which is sort of an amplifier of children's insecurities and harsh criticism. There is threats of global warming. Um, there is economic insecurity and fears that when they get out of college, they won't find a job. Um, I mean, I could go on and on. I mean, it is a very stressful world to grow up in. Um, these kids feel they have to have resumes by the time they're 14 and they have to do extraordinary things and, and, um, aspire to being extraordinary. Otherwise they won't get into university. I mean, they're, they're adultomorphized. They're treated like adults before they are adults, um, and expected to be amazing when, you know, I'm 57. When I was a teenager, I wasn't amazing and nor was I expected to be amazing because <laughs> I just knew that it would, my parents knew that life is a process and, you know, you'll figure it out as you go. That's not the way these kids feel. They feel mm -hmm. they have to be amazing when they're at a very fragile point in their brain development and their neurological development where um, that kind of stress and pressure overwhelms that developing brain. Um, so there's so many external factors um, in, in addition to having more anxious and more depressed parents. So we know that mental illness is not restricted to young people. Adults also are suffering from it more. And so you know, parents are also suffering from anxiety and depression, and that gets passed down generationally to their children, unless they stop that cycle and get help, which is why in the book, I say, look, I'm an expert, I'm a parent guidance expert, that means I help parents to help their children. But first, I help parents. Mm -hmm. And parents need to seek help themselves. It's a tremendous time of change for adolescents, but it's also a tremendous opportunity for change for parents as individuals. Yeah. Well, yes. Well, that leads on to a couple of questions I've got, which are sort of um, linked, is what effect do parents have on their children, well, their adolescents' mental health? And what effect does it have on parents knowing the effect that they, they're having? Because although teenagers are, you know, under a lot of pressure to do well, parents 
possibly are under more pressure. You know, my definitely my father's generation, they were just put out in the street Monday morning and, you know, come home Friday night. Um, whereas in our generation, I think we play with our children much more. We interact with them more, you know, when we when we have time. We're much more conscious of being parents. We're not just sort of coexisting. Um, so, yeah, so what effect are, is parents, our parents having on their children's mental health and how does that affect parents knowing that? So think of a little checklist for parents. These are the things that are going to affect your children. Uh, your self-esteem, your self-awareness, your self-regulation. That means your ability to regulate your own emotions, your own resilience. Uh, if you are resilient to stressful events, your emotional security, if you are not emotionally secure, you can't really expect your children to be emotionally secure. So we go down that checklist and we say, well, I'm that, but I'm not that. And I'm that. If any of those boxes are unchecked, then it's important to go get help so you can then be the best parent. We all want to be the best parent that we can be to our children. And um, I know in America, there's always, and, and in the UK, there's always the challenge of, are there enough mental health services for people? Are they affordable enough? What we know is the digital mental health services now because of COVID have become accessible and they're less expensive. We also know that, um, you know, the world is taking a good look at mental health services overall and saying, you know what, we need more, we need to fund more. That's why I come to the UK, as you know, Claire, often to talk about policymakers about policy and where money should be spent in terms of children and their well-being and families and their well-being. Um, so, you know, th the world is taking a good look at it. But the other thing, and I, I think you know, but maybe a lot of people don't know, is that um, in major cities, uh, there are always psychoanalytic institutes. And they are, I'm a psychoanalyst, right? They are the terminal, ter the, being a psychoanalyst is the terminal degree in talk therapy. It is the most knowledgeable, wise, educated endpoint for people who do talk therapy. It's the longest training. Um, and these psychoanalytic institutes have trainees who are already in their own right, established therapists who are going back for, for more training and more in-depth training. And those therapists are seeing patients at a low fee and then are being supervised by senior analysts. So if you contact a psychoanalytic institute in London, like the Tavistock has, has a low fee clinic, the Anna Freud Center in London, and there are others in the UK uh, and in major cities. Um, there's probably one in Manchester. And um, so, you know, if you call those psychoanalytic institutes and ask for a low fee referral, they will give you one. And they are very experienced therapist, child therapist, adolescent therapist, and adult therapist. So as a parent, there really is no more excuse for not getting help for yourself because it is more available. Yes. Well, I, I'm aware that uh, particularly you're talking about teenagers discovering themselves. And, and one of the things is to separate from parents. And one of the ways they demonstrate that is by finding parents intolerable and very, very annoying. Mm -hmm. um, and I've spoken to other mothers who whose self-esteem's taken a real dive when their teenagers, teenage girls in particular, have hit sort of 14, 15. 
they've really struggled with their self-esteem because they're totally always being told they're useless. You know, my, my daughter feels like she's the only competent person in the household now, but, but she's, she's great. You know, I don't have a problem with her. She's okay. But, um, you know, some people, I think their teenagers are brutal to them. They're really nasty to their, their mothers and their fathers in a sort of different way. Um, how can, uh, mothers in particular say keep their self-esteem up during this time of uh, the you know the separation from their teenagers so I always say that children turn from dogs when they're little to cats when they're adolescent <laughs> and anybody who's had a dog or a cat knows what I mean by that analogy um, so you know dogs are dependent and cuddly and, you know, want a lot of attention and want to be close to you and, you know, want you to love them and want to love you. And uh, that's what little kids are. If you are present enough, you develop that relation, that healthy dependency with them. Um, then they become adolescents. And as you say, they need to push you away. And sometimes the more the more intimate they are with you when they're little, the the harder they need to push away from you. So I always use the analogy of a um, fast flowing river with a dock and a boat. And the boat keeps running into the dock. You're the dock, your child is the boat. And sometimes you just need to push away from that dock so hard to get away from that dock in such a, 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 a fast flowing, strong current. And that is really the current is the current that pushes them back to the sweet dependency of their early years, uh, but would then not allow them to continue on their developmental path of moving forward and becoming independent of you. Um, I remind parents that we will all die and leave our children and we wanna leave our children able to care for themselves we don't want to leave our children excessively dependent. So, and sometimes parents are relieved to hear that, that sometimes the more aggressive a child is, not always, but sometimes the more aggressive they are, uh, the more, the harder it is to leave home, right? So you have to push very hard against your parents. But it takes a lot of security. It takes a lot of resilience as a parent, you know, so it's why I said, if you are not resilient, if you can't regulate your emotions, meaning if you, uh, when you feel disappointed, you go into the despairs of hopelessness of reject, rejection and abandonment, then you know it's not to do with your child. It's to do with something earlier for you, right? So we know that there's generational expression of pain and that if we have gone into parenting, um, in pain from our childhood that has been uncovered by parenting, then uh, that sort of pops up for uncomfortable moments for us, right? So, um, but the idea is that we have to be resilient. We can't take things personally. Uh, we have to be able to bear and contain, the word is contain, a lot of aggression from our children, understanding <clears throat> that they do this to preserve their independence, uh, not because they hate us. And they might even tell you they hate you and they wish you weren't their parent and you suck and all this. And you have to be able to hold it and say, I hear you. It's really hard. You know, you're realizing that mommy's not perfect or daddy's not perfect. And um, it's a real time adolescence of de-idealizing parents. So recognizing that they're not perfect, that, um, 
And, and in a way, it's comforting to them because if you're not perfect, they don't have to be perfect. Uh, but if you react defensively or um, you react with in, in anger or retaliate in anger, um, then they've struck a chord in you that doesn't have to do with them. Mm. Yeah. Um, I, I just wanted to move on to another issue as well about the romantic relationships that um, teenagers start forming uh you know we all know there's going to be breakups along the way and if you hear you know all female singers you know have been dumped by horrendously awful boys along the way you'd never want to go out and do a leaper she hates all her ex-boyfriends um but you know there's a real anger there's a real sort of instinctive sense of um this person you must hate them in order to separate but as a parent what what can you do when you're you know i have a girl and a boy so they're going we're going to see it we can't say all boys are horrible or all girls are horrible they they're both going to be sort of the dumper and the dumpy or the whatever how do you support a teenager going through a, a, a relational breakup what's it what because you, you don't want to say well you know it's you're a bit unreasonable yourself sometimes or you know it's a, do you take their side how do you help them through it well I think it's important to be subjectively supportive of your child I think you can leave objectivity to um to their therapist I don't think you need to be <clears throat> so objective with them but I do think you can help them process the experience of loss. You can help them to mourn because when you lose a boyfriend or girlfriend um, when you're adolescent, it feels more painful. I mean, I don't know if anybody listening remembers their first heartbreak. Um, it's not like the heartbreak of an adult. It feels like something deeper and more painful and um, and you say the cut cuts deeper in adolescence because the loss is pervasive throughout their experience of, of adolescence. They're losing the idealized parent of their childhood. They're also losing the sweet dependency of being a young child. And there's a lot of loss. They're losing you in a way uh, and adopting a different version of you. So there's so much loss already that when they find their first love, who is really helps to carry them away from and helps in the process of separation uh, from their parents, you know, having somebody to cling to and be dependent on instead of your parents. It's like exchanging one love object for another. But then when you lose that person, it can feel absolutely devastating. Um, and so being empathic and trying to remember what it was like to be an adolescent, that the pain is not, you know, some parents sort of think it's cute that their parent that their that their adolescents like are in relationships or attached to people their age or but it doesn't feel cute to them. It's absolutely devastating. And so then you have to dig deep. And I think we're better parents when we can remember empathically the pain that we experienced. A lot of um, adults have amnesia when it comes to their adolescence, and that's a problem. Um, or amnesia when it comes to their childhood, because when we have amnesia, we can't empathically connect with our children's experiences or their feelings. Another reason to go into therapy, if you can't remember your pain from childhood, you need to go to talk to somebody to 
to try to remember it so you can better connect with your children's pain. But it, it is an incredibly devastating experience. I think we teach our adolescents something called reciprocity, whether it has to do with their friendships or their relationships with a significant other. We teach them the fact that relationships in life are about match, matching. Um, and that until we find relationships where we love a person as much as they love us, that we haven't found that reciprocity, whether it's with girlfriends or guy friends or boyfriends or girlfriends. Um, that's what we're seeking. That's what emotional maturity in adulthood is. It's having understood, and there's a lot of adults who I treat who never developed this far in terms of their emotional development. They're still seeking out unrequited love and painful love experiences or friendships. Um, so what we're looking for is reciprocity. You know, um, Groucho Marx, the, the famous uh, movie actor, the American movie actor, who I think had been in psychoanalysis, he had a comment. He said, I never want to be a member of a club who wants Wants me as a member. He was a comedian. <laughs> um, that was meant to be ironic and say, right, we know when we're seeking relationships with people who don't want us to be a member of their club, that's not reciprocity. And we have to teach our children that from a very young age. Um, but then it comes up intensely in adolescence. I, the, uh, what you said there makes me think about friendships more, that I think um, with friendships, there's possibly more room for grace and tolerance. You know, that if we, uh, my daughter's got some very good friends, some of them are a bit sketchy, you know, some of them are not as uh, sort of organized as she is or whatever. And I'm trying to teach her that, first of all, friendships are, you know, you don't have that many friends in life and you have to <laughs> value people and you aren't going to find people who are perfect. I think, would you say there's probably more forgiveness in the friendship zone, particularly with girls, you know, they they sort of zone in and out of each other a little bit. But um, if you're going to have very high standards for who could be your friend you might end up with no friends but for romantic relationships it's it's almost the opposite you do have to have high standards well I mean it's interesting they're really not that different um, in terms of um, you know you you can be perfectionistic in friendships as well and also I think the idea that friendships particularly with girls can feel like love relationships I mean um, literally, they can be so intimate that when your girlfriends turn away from you or drop you for another group of girls or whatever, or kick you out of the group or whatever, um, it can feel like losing a lover. I mean, without it being a lover. So I think any relationships that are separate from parental and sibling relationships get very intense. And I think it's because they have to leave home and they're clinging to some other kind of intimacy and dependency. And so any relationships, whether they're girlfriends or a boyfriend or girlfriend, if it's a boy, uh, feel just very intense. So we have to take them seriously when they tell us how intense they are. We have to be empathic with great seriousness and dig very deep to relate to their experience that this isn't just a cute, like little high school, you know, whatever relationship. This is a very serious thing for them. And it's a very serious feeling heartbreak. You remember, remember Romeo, Romeo and Juliet? I mean, that is, things are felt 
very deeply, maybe more deeply than they are in adulthood. Mm. Absolutely. But do, do you think within um, friendships there's room for fallibility, you know, that, that uh, people do have these very high expectations of others and everyone's going to let them down at some point. And if you think, well, I try to say to my daughter, you know, well, you know, they're just having a bad day and uh, I'm sure they're still your friends. And it's it's different. It's different. Depends what's happened. You know, if they've been nasty and gone off with someone else that's, uh, you know, been cruel to you, that's one thing. But if they just, I don't know, were, didn't really think of you one day and then they thought, thought of you another. Um, I just wonder whether people have very high standards and expectations of others that then makes it difficult just to let some things go and move on, carry on being friends. I think adolescents are very sensitive. Remember the threat sensing part of their brain is on high alert. So that's very hypervigilant. And that means anything that even reeks of abandonment or rejection or harsh criticism. Um, you know, when you get older and you're an adult and your friend says something stupid to you, that's mean or whatever, you know, you talk it out and you say, that wasn't very nice. And you get on with things. Um, but when you're adolescent, um, because that threat sensing part of the brain is so active, um, they're very on high alert for anything that feels like rejection or criticism. So one thing we can do as parents is to be very good listeners and take that hurt very seriously, uh, but help to soften the edges. Um, and the way we do that is ask open-ended questions without um, dismissing their reality because their reality is their reality. That is reality to them. Um, but you could ask open-ended questions and say, you know, I hear that your friend said something that was really mean. How does that feel? How did it make you feel? Um, you know, is it something that, that you feel you could forgive her for? I mean, what you're doing really is you're trying to get them to talk to you. Um, that's really what we're trying to do is trying to get our adolescents to talk to us and process, 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 rather than just process alone. Right. So. Yes. Could Actually, could you say more on the getting adolescents to talk to us? Because, you know, that people say, oh, my children never talk to me. You say, how was how was school? They say, good. And then that's it. Well, um, you know, the, way, the way I think about it is talkers get people to talk. So if you were not a talker when your kids were little, um, I'm quite a talker. I talk a lot. I talk a lot about feelings. I don't just talk about events or, or you know, uh, oh, I went to the supermarket and I took a shower. No, no, that's that's not going to get to <laughs> so Like, did you go to school today or you took a test today? That's, I mean, what, what do you find out other than they took a test, right? So, you know, kind of skip the events and go to the feelings. And so if you talk to kids from a very young age about feelings, then they learn at a very young age to talk about feelings. <laughs> that's how it, but if you just talk about events and superficial things, then they never learn to talk about feelings. If you talk about feelings with your spouse openly in the house, ah, oh, I had such a bad day. You know, I'm Jewish, so we're always accused of complaining and talking about feelings too much. Actually, it's in that way we, we model, you know, talking about feelings and it's very open. The more openly you talk about feelings in the home from the very beginning, it's never too late. It's never too late to do it. They might go, what happened to mom and dad? Like they must've gotten therapy. Oh my God. 
but it's never too late. But just talking about feelings, you know, I'm feeling this way, my back hurt, and oh, you know, I'm feeling sad because this person at work didn't. They hear that and it's a model for how not only they communicate with you, but how they communicate with their peers. But if you're a house that is a quiet house where things are very internal and very repressed, then that is it's generational transmission. That is how they will interact. And so, you know, you can recreate the wheel in adolescence because you have this other critical window of brain development where they're going to be like, listening and they're still around and you can still sort of talk about feelings and be a talking person and that's how they learn to talk and how about um getting the occasion the right occasion to talk to them do you if they're you know they're not opening up so you can only talk to them when their defenses are down And what do I mean by that? It's got to be on their terms, not your terms. And I use a term in the book called when the door swings open. And I mean that both literally and figuratively because their door is closed much of the time. And it's only when the door swings open, um, both literally where they'll let you in and figuratively where they are open uh, because you are present enough for them that they actually will communicate with you. Uh, In this way, you have to wait. It's sort of like jump rope. You have to wait for the right moment. Well, Erica, there's so much more I'd love to speak to you about, but um, we have got your book coming out, which is wonderful. Really looking forward to that. And that will be out um, in December, won't it, in the UK? So uh, possibly, probably January, the way supply chains are going and delivery drivers. (laughs) But I really like to thank you for sharing all these insights with us. It's been just a massive help. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Claire. And if anybody has any questions, they can go to my website, www.comisar.com. Brilliant. Thank you, Erica. Thanks so much. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for listening. Um, As you'll have gathered, there are just so many more questions that we could cover, but uh, there is a lot of information in the Chicken Little book. uh, So I'd recommend you try and get hold of that when that is released. Um, Also, there's more information on Erica's website, which is uh, www.ericacommissar.com. And that's uh, Erica's with a C and Commissar is with a K and I'll put links in the show notes so thank you very much for listening today um, if you'd like to follow uh, when the next episode is being released uh, you can subscribe on my podcast and uh, I'm on Instagram and Facebook Mothers Matter Podcast on Twitter at Podcast Mothers and on email mothersmatter at outlook.com uh, my name's Claire Pay. Uh, Thank you very much to James Ede, who is my producer, who um, assembles the podcast and makes it sound good. So thank you to him. He works for his company's called Be Heard Productions. So thank you. And I'll be back with another podcast soon. Bye. Bye.